And I'm just really thrilled today to get into the Word with you um, with a special guest speaker, one of my uh, longest, longtime friends, Chris Cross. If you want to come on over, my brother Chris. Chris Cross, uh, he, he makes an appearance in my sermons about at least once a month, I think, of like absolute total sinners that uh, Jesus saved. But no, I'm kidding. Um, but just one of my dear, dear friends since I was about uh, 17 years old and uh, a discipler of mine, he mentored me for many years. We were on staff together at Calvary Chapel Corvallis. He was the middle school pastor, I was the high school pastor, and we served and loved on kids for quite a while, until he abandoned me and left me all alone with a bunch of little rookies, and then I became their mentor, I think. Yes, I trained them up. But uh, Chris went to Brazil, got a bug under my glasses. Chris went to Brazil and was part of starting a church in Curitiba, Brazil, and then uh, has planted a church in Bend, uh, served in Montana, in Belt, Montana, and most recently has been serving in Roseville, California, and now the Lord just got him in a place where he's praying about where God would have him pastoring a uh, church in Oregon. So we're praying for the Cross family as they're in kind of an in-between stage, see what the Lord might do for ministry in Oregon lately. So give my dear, dear friend Chris Cross a hand as he brings the word to us this morning. welcoming. We had an opportunity on Friday night to gather together and just kind of build our marriages together, looking at three habits of a healthy and fulfilling marriage and many faces I saw yesterday at the fair and then again, good to see you again today. And so really glad to be here. And um, I cannot tell you, I was standing over there during worship, how in 26 years of ministry, I never get tired of seeing people come forward to take communion. It is such a wonderful, glorious thing that we get to partake in remembering the death and resurrection of our Savior Jesus. Amen? Amen. And it's just, I never get tired of it. It's such a wonderful, wonderful thing. Um, and just being able to be here with you guys. In fact, as Rory said, I, I grew up in Oregon. Um, I went to Oregon State University. Um, the Lord took us out of Oregon in 2002 to Brazil, brought us back to Bend, planted a church there for four or five years, and then took us to Montana, and then to California. So it's, gosh, it's been 12, 13 years since we've been home. And uh, we got, we arrived in Oregon on Tuesday, and then we drove here on Friday, and you guys have welcomed us, and it feels like home. And so I just want to say thank you so much for that, and thank you for having us here today. Um, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open your Bibles to Romans chapter 8 this morning. Romans chapter 8. The title of this morning's message is Why? Why? And so if you don't mind, why don't we go ahead and stand together and I'm going to read this passage, verses 26 through 39. We'll stand, read the Word of God together. At the end, uh, I will say this is the Word of God and I'm asking that you reply by saying Amen. Okay? Amen. So we'll, I'll read it. This is the word of God, and you reply, Amen. So beginning at verse 26 of Romans chapter 8. Likewise, the Spirit helps in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Father, we come before you this morning and we just thank you so much for the opportunity to gather together to worship in the name of Christ. 
We praise you and thank you for the opportunity to come and remember the, the, the life of Jesus, the death of Christ, the resurrection of the Lord. And just as we were sitting here and the wind was blowing, I was just praying, Lord, breathe upon us afresh and anew today. Word of God, we pray, would you speak to us? Would you have your way in our lives? Lord, we pray for the anointing of the Holy Spirit, not only to speak your word, but also to receive your word. Your word tells us in Revelation, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says. And so God, we have ears, we have two of them. We pray, Lord God, that you'd open them and open our hearts to your word today. May your Holy Spirit have its way within us. And Lord, may you cause us, as was prayed earlier by my brother Adam, Lord, to... Lord, to know you more clearly and love you more dearly and follow you more nearly. To trust you, Lord God, we pray. To hold on to you. To believe. Lord, we pray just for an extra portion of faith in our lives as we desire to follow hard after you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. (coughs) Quick question. How many of you guys here this morning are parents? Go ahead and raise your hand if you're a parent. So we have quite a few parents here. Then you'll be able to relate to this statement. Being a parent means knowing more. It means caring more. It means having to say from time to time to your children, trust me. I remember when I first became a dad, I had the bright idea that I was going to do a few things different than my father had done. I was going to create a perfect family environment where it was always okay for my children to ask why. You see, my father did something that I'm sure many of our fathers have done. When uh, he would tell me to do something and I would ask why, sometimes he would reply with this statement, because I'm your father, and I said so. (laughs) Somehow he must have thought that that would make everything okay, right, for a young child. That would just put my, my little mind at ease. Oh, dad said so, therefore it must be okay, it must be good. But I decided that when I became a father, I was going to change all of that. I was going to be the first father in all of human history to never say the words because I said so. And I always was going to answer the question why with, that's a great question. Let's sit down and talk about it. Thinking that there was enough time in the day for that. (laughs) Thinking that there was enough comprehension in my child's brain that my explanation would somehow bring us both to the same logical conclusion and that our family would somehow be perfectly happy. But I soon realized my brilliant plan fell apart when my firstborn child was old enough to utter the word, why? And it was then that I recognized that that question wasn't a coherent question. She wasn't desiring to get all the facts. It was a delay tactic. Right? She's trying to gain more time. Sometimes it felt that she was asserting her own will over my own. And even attacking my parenting. Asserting her authority and questioning mine and my wisdom. And as kids get older, that never changes, does it? It doesn't. No. No. Someone with a real deep voice. No. It doesn't change. In the teenage years, sometimes I have an 18-year-old that's now going to college. I have a 14-year-old that turns 15 on Wednesday. And we are going to start driving. Please pray. <laughs> Please pray. In the teenage years, sometimes it is appropriate to sit them down and have what I like to call a Jesus meeting. You know, Jesus, a, a confrontation, and we come down, we sit down, we talk about things, we reason together, explain things. Sometimes I explain things monotonously and I seem to get nowhere, but nonetheless, it's good to have those conversations. But more often than not, more often than not, it really comes down to this. Kids, we love you. We love you. And before you were born, your mother and I decided that we would do whatever it takes and do anything we possibly could to make sure that you were raised well. And one day, we're going to go be with Jesus, and all that we have will be yours. And so, we have served and sacrificed and saved to give you a good life. And so, with all that said, understand that we have lived a full life. We're not born old. 
right? We, we experience life just as you have. We have grown up just as you are doing. And we've had to make tough decisions. We've had to see a lot of things and make a lot of mistakes. And because of that, can you understand that I have a knowledge that you do not have? So the choices and decisions that we make concerning you have a purpose. There's a plan behind them. We're developing something in you. Things that I'm sure you could care less about now, but later on will mean the world to you. How many of us, when we were young, thought our parents were out of their minds, but later on we realized they're actually pretty smart? Right? (laughs) So, is it possible with that information... For you to trust me. That when I ask you to tell the truth and hold you accountable when you don't. That when I tell you to be home at a certain time. And go to bed at a certain time. When I say no to social media. I tell you to brush your teeth. Or to do your chores before you go hang out with your buddies. That there's a reason for it all. I know that you may not see it now. But... Can you trust your dad? Can you trust your father? Well, Romans chapter 8, verses 26 to 39 is God having this same fatherly conversation with us. He's going to tell us some truth that is absolute, will absolutely throw a wrench into our theological framework. Everything within us is going to want to push back against what we're going to see and hear this morning. And so our Heavenly Father gives us this passage to show us how we can handle the truth He's about to give. This morning we're moving into one of the most difficult concepts for our culture to accept in all of God's Word. It's the idea of God's free will, and it's called the sovereignty of God. The Bible tells us that God's thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our our ways. In fact, it tells us as high as the heavens are above the earth, so are his ways higher than our ways and his thoughts greater than our thoughts, right? Isaiah chapter 55, verses 8 and 9. And what that means is this, is that God does whatever he wills. God does whatever he wills. And whatever he wills comes to be. Nothing happens out of his intention and nothing happens outside of his control. All things, everything that happens, whether it be a refrigerator going out or our son falling and breaking their arm before church starts, nothing happens outside of God's will. Everything is filtered through his hands. Listen to what Isaiah says in Isaiah 14, 24. It says, the Lord of hosts has sworn... Surely I have planned, so it will be. As I have purposed, so it will stand. Job 23, 13, he does what he desires. And Isaiah 46, 10, I love this verse. Isaiah 46, 10, declaring the end and the result from the beginning and from ancient times the things which have not yet been done, saying, my purpose will be established. And I will do all that pleases me and fulfills my purpose. The subject of the sovereignty of God is difficult for two reasons. Number one, we are limited by our finite understanding. And number two, and this is the hardest part, we're not the ones calling the shots. That's really hard for us. But if we can be okay with Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, where it says, In the beginning, God created. The word ex nihilo, he created out of nothing. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Then we should be okay with everything the Bible says about God, his plans, and the way that he works. Amen. Someone once said, concerning the doctrine of the Trinity, to try and explain it, you'll lose your mind. But deny it, you'll lose your soul. And I think the same can be said about the sovereignty of God. Listen, we do not hold to the doctrine of the sovereignty of God because it's easy to grasp. We don't hold to the doctrine of the sovereignty of God because it's easy to accept or understand. We hold to the doctrine of the sovereignty of God because God has revealed that this is what he is like. And we, as we delve into this text here this morning, there's going to be a lot of questions, I'm sure. And some of them will be answered here today. Some will be answered in later sermons or by the Holy Spirit. But one thing is for sure, in the end, everything will be answered by Him. Amen? 
So let me show you something that's amazing. If you have your Bibles, turn again to Romans chapter 11, verse 33. Romans 11, verse 33. In this section of Scripture, Paul is completing one of the most robust sections in all of the Word of God on the sovereignty of God. And notice how he completes this. Notice what he does as he finishes this section. He sings a doxology. He erupts in worship. In Romans chapter 8, or 11, verse 33, it says, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. Paul is worshiping. He's like, man, God's wisdom and his knowledge is so incredible. How unsearchable, he says, are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. Verse 34, for who has known the mind of the Lord or who has become his counselor or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? Verse 36, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Notice that Paul teaches the sovereignty of God and it results in spontaneous, a spontaneous concert of praise. We teach it and it divides churches. We speak of it and it divides friendships. Friends, listen. If this doctrine, the doctrine of the sovereignty of God does not cause us to rejoice like never before, then simply put, we just don't understand it. We just simply do not understand it. And I want to show you here this morning why Paul would be so excited about the doctrine of the sovereignty of God. Flip back to Romans chapter 8, verse 26 and 27. Romans 8, 26 and 27. I'm reading from the ESV. Some of you guys might have some different translations. But it says this in verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps in our weakness. If you guys are taking notes, if you're one to underline or highlight in your Bible, highlight that verse, the beginning of verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. When Paul is writing these words, understand that he's writing to a group of people who are already experiencing incredible hardship and hostility. And so he's trying to encourage them. But the Holy Spirit knows that even harder times are ahead of these people. And so he inspires Paul to pen these words. In fact, five years after Paul pens these words, many of those who would read this letter would find themselves in the midst of persecution. Some would be beheaded, some would be crucified, others would be fed to lions in the Colosseum, some would be burned alive to light the streets of Rome, children would see their parents die for their faith in Christ, and parents would lose their children to persecution. No doubt in the midst of this time, there were countless questions. There were a ton of why God. By the way, just to take a little side note. Do you guys know it's okay to question God? It's okay to question God. How do I know that? Because most of the Psalms, David writes them and David is asking that question. Why God? Why? John the Baptist sends messengers to Jesus. As John the Baptist is in prison, he says, Jesus, are you the Messiah or should we be looking for someone else? And do you know why John the Baptist was asking that question? You know what he was actually saying? Jesus, if you're the Messiah, then why am I in prison? Jesus himself cries out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's okay to question God. How many of you guys have ever seen the movie Life of Pi? You want to see the Life of Pi? If you haven't seen it, I encourage you to rent it to look it up, to watch it. It's one of the most beautiful movies I've ever seen. The cinematography is incredible. And what's so amazing about it is this interchange, the dialogue that takes place within the character. And at one point during the movie, he's talking about God and he's talking about faith. And this is what he says. He says, faith in God is an opening up. 
It's a letting go. It's a deep trust, a free act of love. And those of us who've been walking with the Lord for any length of time would say that's exactly what it's like. It is an opening up. It's a surrender to God. It's a deep trust. Putting our faith in something that we cannot see. It's a free act of love. Responding to God's act of love toward us and the person and finished work of Jesus Christ upon the cross. So we would say yes to those things. But he goes on. But sometimes, he says, it is hard to love. Sometimes my heart was sinking so fast with anger, desolation, and weariness that I was afraid it would sink to the very bottom of the Pacific and I would not be able to lift it back up. I'm sure many of us have been in that place before. Recently, my wife and I were meeting with a couple and they had just gone through a really tough time and she just lost her mother to a tragic uh, event. And we're sitting in a coffee shop and we're talking and I said, how are you doing? And she whispered, I'm angry with God. And I leaned over and I said, it's okay. Have you told him? And she's like, no. And I go, tell him. It's okay. He's strong enough to receive it. And he wants to hear it. He already knows it's in your heart. Just talk to him about it. Just be honest with him. Guys, it's okay to question God. But, but we have to be ready for the answer. And so this morning, we're going to be looking at the sovereignty of God in three things. Number one, the sovereignty of God guarantees that, you're, that you will not suffer in vain. The sovereignty of God guarantees that you will not suffer in vain. Secondly, it guarantees that you'll make it, that you will make it all the way to glory. And thirdly, it guarantees his perfect favor. It guarantees his perfect favor. Let's look at the first. God's sovereignty guarantees that you will not suffer in vain. Verse 28 says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Now, Paul is going to give us two things here that he is not saying and two things that he is saying. The first is this. He is not saying that all things work together for good for everyone. For everyone. This promise pertains only to those who love God, those who are called according to his purpose. Those are two defining marks of the believer. They have been called. This is a call unto salvation. So, if you are saved, then you are called. Well, how do you know if you've been called unto salvation, you might say? Listen, Paul tells us, because you love God. Because you love God. There's an unmistakable, unshakable, persistent presence of the love of God in your life and for the things of God. And so, number one, he's not telling us that all things are good for everyone. He's not telling us that... Everything is good. He's not saying that all things are good. Christian scientists believe that there is no such thing as wickedness, no such thing as evil. That's not what the Bible teaches. There are some things that are bad, some things that are evil. Listen, it's not good that a child is born handicapped. It's not good that marriages end. It's not good that you get cancer. It's not good that you get sick. It's not good that your children rebel. There are millions of things that are bad because of the presence of sin. But the text this morning tells us that God is bigger than all of that. Amen? He's bigger than all of that. And he's able to redeem every situation for your good and for his glory. And so again, all things work together for good, but not for everyone. And not all things are good. But what Paul is saying is this, that God is able to even use those apparent seemingly bad things to accomplish his good purpose. In other words, God can draw straight lines with crooked sticks. Isaiah 61 verse 3 says that God can make a crown of beauty from ashes. The oil of gladness instead of mourning. The garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. That they may be called oaks of righteousness. The planting of the Lord. That he may be glorified. God can take the worst situations that we face. The brokenness, the loss, the pain, the destruction. He can take it and make it beautiful again. He can take 
No, and give, and give us the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, so that he might be glorified through our lives. Remember Joseph in Genesis? Joseph is rejected by his brothers, falsely accused by Potiphar's wife, forgotten in prison. And in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, when it's all said and done, Je uh, Joseph says, You meant it for evil, but who can finish the rest? But God meant it for good. But it goes on, for the saving of many lives. For the saving of many lives. So what happened? God let Joseph suffer, but not only for his good, but so that many lives might be preserved. How about Moses? As soon as he's born, the daughter of the man who wants him dead finds him, brings him into Pharaoh's home, and raises him as her own son. As he gets older, he wants to connect with his own people. He reaches out to the Jews. They reject him as well. He flees Egypt to protect his own life. But when, through a, but then it's through a series of extraordinary events, he goes from a prince of Egypt to a shepherd of goats, and Moses realizes that God orchestrated all of that to bring him to the far side of Midian because God had a burning bush waiting for him. How about Simon Peter in Luke chapter 22? Jesus tells Peter, and this is probably one of the most difficult passages in scripture for me. He tells Peter, Satan has asked permission to sift you like wheat. Can you imagine? Jesus comes to you and says, hey, I just want to tell you something. I was having a conversation with Satan recently. And he asked permission to sift you like wheat. And I think it would be good for you. <laughs> that's, that's literally what he's pretty much saying. He goes, but... Hey, be encouraged. I'm praying for you. And when you've been restored, he says, then strengthen your brothers. Let me ask you something. What's the worst act that has ever occurred in human history? Think about it for a moment. What is the worst act that has ever occurred in human history? Biting an apple. That was pretty bad. Yeah. How about this? The murder, death, and crucifixion of the Son of God. The murder, death, and crucifixion of the Son of God. What was the greatest act that has ever happened in human history? The same thing. The murder, death, and crucifixion of the Son of God. What does that tell us? It tells us this, that God can use evil, disappointing, discouraging, brokenness, painful moments in our lives to accomplish his purpose and his plan. God can and does draw straight lines with crooked sticks. Now let's talk about you here this morning. How many of you here this morning are suffering? Or have suffered? If not, the Bible tells us in 2 Timothy chapter 3 that all those who desire to live godly lives in Christ Jesus will suffer. So maybe you're not going through it now or you never have, but it's bound to happen one way or the other at some point in time. Remember, within five years of writing this letter, those who read it, many of them were crucified and beheaded and lit on fire to light the streets of Rome and fed the lions in the Colosseum. And many of you are going through some tough times right now. Others of you have come out of some really dark seasons. Still others of you are getting ready to go into them. And Paul's message to us this morning is simply this. Don't worry. Don't lose heart. I was thinking this morning of uh, Lord of the Rings. I love that series, Lord of the Rings. And there's one section where Samwise Gamgee is talking to Frodo, and he says, don't you let go. Don't let go. In the midst of trial and tribulation and suffering and hardship, don't fear. Don't lose heart. Embrace it. My dad was in the military and the army for 31 years. He used to tell me about all these guys he'd run into that were rangers. And they used to have these patches all over them and say, embrace the suck. <laughs> embrace the suck. Embrace it. Recognize that God is doing something, that he's working for your good in ways that we cannot see, in ways that we don't understand, but yet he is working. Remember verses 26 and 27. The Holy Spirit 
purposefully, I love how God works. He purposefully had Paul write the words of verses 26 and 27 before verse 28, which is so hard for us to understand in the midst of trial and tribulation and hardship. He wrote verses 26 and 27 to let us know that God knows and God sees us, that he knows how hard it is for us to trust and have faith when things are really hard. He understands that in the midst of pain and loss, and that when we're going through those moments, it's really hard for us to understand why God is doing what he's doing and why he's allowing these things to happen to us. How many of us have asked God that question? God, I don't understand this. Why are you doing this? I remember years ago, we went to Brazil and we moved there away from our family. It was really hard. We were pregnant when we moved. Man, grandparents were not happy that we were taking their grandbaby to a third world country. And we moved to Brazil, had our baby there. Really difficult. There was no family, no friends. We really didn't know anyone. And soon after, for whatever reason, soon after Sarah, my oldest, was born, probably a month or so after, my wife started losing her sight. She started going blind. And it started off in one eye, and it was just like the aperture of a camera just starting to shift to close down to a point where she could just barely see out of a little hole, and then it started happening to her other eye. We went to the doctor, and they tested her for all kinds of things. We're wondering, what is going on? I don't understand. We're just trying to serve you here. We left everything to come and serve you in Brazil. Didn't know the language, didn't know the culture, had no one to call, no one to rely on, no one to pray with. So they started giving her steroids to try and, she had a swelling on her optic nerve, and so they gave her steroids to kind of stop that. She got super buff, it was pretty awesome. But they gave her steroids to stop that. Well, of course, she's, she's nursing, and that doesn't go well when you're trying to nurse. So Sarah stopped eating. She stopped started losing a ton of weight. And I remember being in her room in the middle of the night and literally screaming into a pillow, Why, God? Why? And I literally said this in my foolishness, Lord, you brought me here to die. And I heard God say, Yes, I did. And I was like, What? Seriously? When we are in those moments, God wrote verses 26 and 27 to remind us that he's praying for us. When we don't know how to pray, the Holy Spirit is interceding on our behalf. He brings us to the Father and he says, Lord, strengthen them. Father, give them grace and faith and may your will be done. He is literally at the throne of God and he's bringing you to the Father by name and he's saying, Lord, help them, be with them. God's purposes will be accomplished in the lives of his children, but whatever he's doing, this is one thing that's been so comforting for me over the years, 20, almost 30 years now I've walked with the Lord. That he always has my best interest in mind. He always have my, has my well-being in mind. And for whatever reason, though, I, this is something I don't quite understand. For whatever reason, in his finite wisdom, God has determined that the greatest tool it, it, to transform a human being is the furnace of affliction. I would choose, like, maybe a hangnail. <laughs> but he chooses the furnace of affliction. Listen to what he writes, what Paul writes in Romans chapter 5, verse 3. And not only that, but we also boast in our afflictions. Because we know, he says, we know that affliction does something. God is doing something in our lives. We may not understand exactly where he's bringing us, what he's trying to teach us, what he's trying to create in us, but we know this, that he's doing something. He says it produces endurance, and endurance produces proven character. And proven character produces hope. In my almost 30 years of walking with the Lord and 26 years of ministry, I can honestly tell you this. I've never heard someone come to me and give this testimony. I was born with a silver spoon in my mouth. And I have received every blessing and every opportunity and every chance in life has been given to me on a silver platter. I have never suffered I've lived a trouble-free and a carefree life, and that's why I love Jesus so much. I've never heard that. 
But I have heard this, and I can line up hundreds of testimonies where someone will say this, that I have gone through hell on earth, and I have lost everything. I didn't think I was going to make it, but God, through it all, has used it to make me who I am today. Amen? And I'm assuming, as I'm looking out here, that all of us can pretty much say that same thing. But God has used all of it for his good. I'm sorry, for our good and for his glory. Listen, bad things happen. And the doctrine of the sovereignty of God enables you to survive. There is so much that happens in this world that doesn't make sense. This last year, man, ridiculous, right? This last year is absolutely ridiculous. Our nation is unraveling at the seams, and we're looking at going, what is wrong with people? Someone once said they kind of characterized last year, 2020, as a dumpster fire. I think it's incredible, incredible characterization of what last year, last year was like. But here's the thing. I can live with the fact that I don't understand everything. I can live with the fact that God has a massive plan that encompasses all the trouble and all of the evil and all the sin that I will ever encounter in my life. I can live with all of that. What I can't live with and what I pray that none of us can live with is the idea that God is not in control. Jeremiah 29, 11 says this, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans of good and not for evil. To give you a future and a hope. Everyone loves that verse, right? It's such a great verse. You know what I love about it so much? Is it says this, that God has declared it. He's declared it. He has literally spoken it into existence. Whatever his plans, whatever his purpose, he has already spoken it into existence. It's not like one day he was at McDonald's and had a bright idea about your future and goes, gosh, I better write this down. Flips over a napkin and begins to scribble it out on the back of a napkin. Tucks it in his Wranglers and goes about his day. And then, then those pants get washed. And one day he puts his hand in his pocket and he goes, oh, what was the thing I killed? It's all gone. I forgot. That's not what happens to God. He purposes, he plans, he speaks your future and your good into existence to give you a future and a hope. Corey Tinboom once said this, every experience God gives you and every person he puts in your life is God's perfect preparation for a future that only he can see. So God's sovereignty guarantees that no trial you ever go through will be wasted. It all has a purpose. All of it has value. Secondly, God's sovereignty guarantees that you're going to make it all the way to glory. You're not going to stop short. You're not going to fall short. You will make it all the way to glory. How do I know this? Look at verses 29 and 30. In verses 29 and 30, Paul gives us what theologians call the golden chain of salvation. He says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of of his son. Again, the Holy Spirit knows that we read verse 28 and we're like, wait a minute, pump the brakes here. Wait, this doesn't make any sense. He goes, wait. Verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. There's a purpose for it. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Paul says, God foreknew you. This is speaking of something that theologians call the omniscience of God. It's one of his uh, incommunicable attributes, meaning that it's an attribute or a quality of God that he does not share with any of his creation. It's the idea that God knows everything. That there is nothing that is hidden from his complete and infinite wisdom, knowledge, and understanding. Many people read that and they think that this is talking about how God knows the future. And God does know the future. But this word of foreknowledge, it means much, much more than that. Foreknowledge comes from the word prognosko. Prognosko. And it's a compound word that simply means this. It's, it's Greek word and it's Hebrew equivalent carry the idea of special intimacy. And it's frequently used to describe a love relationship as in Genesis chapter 4 verse 17 where it says that Cain knew his wife and she conceived. It's talking about marital relations, that Cain knew her intimately. In Amos chapter 3 verse 2, 
the Lord says to Israel, you only have I known among all the families of the earth. And what this means is that God knew Israel in a unique sense of having predetermined that she would be his chosen people. 2 Timothy 2.19 2 Timothy 2.19, Paul writes to young Timothy and tells him the Lord knows those who are his. So foreknowledge doesn't at all mean foreseeing, but rather it carries the idea of God intentionally wrapping you into his greater plan. God intentionally wrapping you into his greater plan. Like he tells Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter 1 verse 5. Jeremiah 1.5, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. I was wrapping you intentionally into my greater plan, my greater purpose for your life. Before you were born, I consecrated you. I have appointed you a prophet to the nations. So in Romans 8.29, Paul tells us that we have been foreknown. That you are uniquely marked out, set apart, and wrapped into a greater purpose. And then he tells us that we've been predestined. Again, another Greek word, prohorizo, which is where we get our English word horizon from. And it carries the idea of God setting boundaries, God setting limits, as he does in Acts chapter 2, verse 23, when he refers to Jesus, Paul, or sorry, Luke writing, this man, Jesus, was delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. Luke is telling us that Jesus suffered not at the hands of humanity. It wasn't conceived in the heart of men, what happened to Jesus. But by the predetermined purpose of God, God is the one that set the boundaries. God is the one that set the limits. What does that mean for us today as we sit here in Prineville, this wonderful day? Christians living in Crook County in the year 2021. What does that mean for us? It means this, that the suffering I'm sorry, that whatever God is allowing to happen in our lives, no matter how hard, no matter how heart-wrenching or challenging it may be, God has set the limit of it. God has predetermined the boundaries of it. I'm reminded of Job chapter 38, verse 11. God is speaking to Job. He's correcting Job's understanding of how things are supposed to be. And he refers to the oceans and how the oceans have a limit. And he literally says this, thus far, he's speaking to the waves. I have said thus far, your waves, your proud waves can go. I've set the boundary. This is it. No further are you to travel beyond this point. In the same way, God has set the boundaries of our, of our own suffering, our own hardships. He set the limits. In Ephesians 1.5, Paul tells us that it's simply based upon the kind intention of his will. And so God is predestined. He's foreknown. He's called you. And again, this calling is unto salvation. 1 Corinthians 1.2. To the church of God that is in Corinth, Paul writes, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to the saints together with all those who are in every place called upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And God has justified you. And I'm sure Rory has spoken about this many times, that idea of this word justification. It's this picture of a judicial act of God whereby he declares the guilty sinner innocent and righteous in the sight of God based upon the merits of Jesus. And lastly, he's glorified you. You say, wait a minute, I'm not glorified yet. I haven't reached glory yet. Listen, in God's economy, if he promises, if God says it, it's as good as already done. And so the sovereignty of God guarantees that no trial that you go through will be wasted. And it guarantees that you'll make it all the way to glory. And lastly, God's sovereignty guarantees his perfect favor. Look at verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And you say, well, hey, lots of things can be against us. But honestly, who can really be against us? Who can make any headway against us if God is for us? What can they really do? If they take our lives, how bad is that? Paul says this, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. That's not all that bad, is it? To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. In the following verses, then Paul does something pretty amazing. I love what the Holy Spirit does here. 
he bookends verse 28 because he knows how difficult it is for us to understand this idea that hardship and difficulty and trial and pain are meant for our good. And so verses 26 and 27, he reminds us the Holy Spirit's praying for us. And then he encourages us. He reminds us of the character of God. And guys, I cannot tell you enough how important it is when you're going through trial and difficulty, how important it is to remember who God is. A few years ago, we had a friend of ours who lost their daughter to cancer. And the family obviously really struggled with that. This guy was in the ministry and he took time off and um, he was prayed every single day. And more often than not, the prayer was, why God, why God, why would you allow this to happen? Why would you allow our daughter to die of cancer? Why would you allow her to suffer? And one day he felt the Lord speak to him and say, you're asking the wrong question. It's not why, but who? And God reminded him of his character. God reminded him of his nature. And it changed his entire outlook on what he was going through. And so Paul does the same thing here in the midst of trial and difficulty. He reminds us of the character of God. And the first thing he reminds us of is how generous God is. Look at verse 32. It says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things. Guys, listen. When we cannot understand verse 28, and you begin to distrust the wisdom and goodness of God, look at verse 32. Here it says that He, God, doesn't take things away, but He freely gives all things graciously. The question we should be asking is, what is He giving us today? And so he reminds us of how generous God is. And then he reminds us that God doesn't accuse us. Verse 33. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Again, this idea that God makes this judicial claim, pronouncement, that we are innocent based upon the person and finished work of Jesus Christ. Then he tells us he doesn't condemn us. Verse 34. Who is, uh, who is to condemn, he says. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised who's at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. And then lastly, lastly, he reminds us of how much God loves us. And his love is persistent, consistent, and never-ending. He says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation? Remember, verse 28, he's telling us all things work together for good. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Remember who he's writing to these individuals at five years from the time that they read this letter. Many of them are going to die for their faith. Shall any of these things separate you? As it's written, verse 36, for your sake we are being killed all the day. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, he says, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure, some of your translations may say, I am certain, I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So Paul is writing to encourage his brothers and sisters in Christ who are going through it, who are walking through the valley of the shadow, so to speak, who are experiencing incredible hardship, hardship that's going to test their faith in the goodness and the wisdom of God, hardship that will cause every fiber of their being to push against God and ask the question, why? And it's in this context that Paul writes, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, I want you to know that God has you. God has you. Some of you guys here this morning, you're going through the fire. Whether it be a diagnosis that you received, whether it be something that's going on in your marriage, whether it be something that's happening with your children, maybe it's a financial issue. 
I mean, something's going on in your extended family. But you're going through it. And it's difficult. And there's times when you wonder, is it ever going to end? I don't think I can take one more thing. I don't know if I can take one more step forward. And the word of God for you this morning is this. God has you. He's not going to let you go. And that even in the midst of all of this, there is a purpose. Though you can't see it, though you can't understand it, there is a purpose for it. A purpose that's greater than yourself. A purpose that God is going to use not only in your life, but in your children's lives, in your spouse's lives, in your family's lives, in your neighbors, your friends, etc. God is going to use it for your good for your glory, but also to the saving of many lives. All he's asking you to do is trust him. I have you. It'll be okay. Just trust me. I'm going to have Adam start making his way up, and I want to close with this last illustration. I think it fits really well with what we've talked about here this morning. At a father and son retreat in Missouri, it always concludes with a trust exercise. And we know what trust exercises are, right? You get up on a table and there's a group of people behind you and you close your eyes and fold your arms and you fall backwards hoping that they're going to catch you, right? Hoping that they're going to catch you. Well, this event, this father and son retreat, they do things a little bit different. The very last day of the event, the boys are all gathered together and they walk by themselves to where there's a cliff. And I was thinking about this cliff face over here as we were worshiping. They walk to the edge of a cliff and once they get there, they have to blindly jump into space and rappel down the face of the cliff by themselves. But every time this happens, every single year they put on this event, something remarkable happens. When the boys get to the edge and they look over, they get to that station. Not a single one of them want the trained experts holding the rope. Every single one of them wants their father to hold the rope. It's remarkable. They're not told to do it, but every single one says, I don't want that guy whom I don't know holding it. I want you, Dad, to hold the rope. And then they leap into the scary abyss, so to speak. They jump off the edge, trusting that their father has them. Romans 8, 26 and 39 tells us that life is going to require you to jump from time to time. It's going to cause you and call you to walk in the valley of the shadow. Paul reminds us that your sovereign, all-powerful father is holding the rope. He promises it's all going to work out for your good and for his glory. And so the sovereignty of God guarantees that you will not suffer in vain, that there's a purpose to it, there's value to it. The sovereignty of God guarantees that you will make it to glory, that this will not kill you. The sovereignty of God guarantees his perfect favor. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning and we thank you for your word. We thank you for the way that you speak through Paul to us this morning, the Holy Spirit moving upon our hearts. Lord, we want to confess that we need you today. We want to confess, Lord God, that we are helpless without you. That we are hopeless without you. Lord, as we prayed, as we began, I want to ask and pray in the name of Jesus that you would breathe into our lives afresh today. I think of John 21 where we read that Jesus after the resurrection met with the disciples and it says that Jesus, you came and said, receive you the Holy Spirit and you breathed upon them and they were filled with the Spirit of God. Lord, would you breathe upon us today? For those of us who are weary in 
broken and tired. For those of us here this morning, Lord God, who are at a place where we don't know if we can continue. We don't even know, know if we want to continue. Lord, would you encourage us through your word. And the things that we're facing, the things that we're going through, there's a purpose to it. That you have a plan. That you will sustain, that you will strengthen, that you'll give us the grace to keep putting one foot in front of the other. That you'll bring us to the end. Lord, that you set a limit. And so, Father, we pray you give us the strength to continue to move forward so that we can say, as Paul said, I have fought the good fight. I have kept the faith. I have finished the race. Perhaps for some of you here this morning or in that place, you're right in the middle of a dark season of your life. And this is a message that you needed to hear. You need to hear that God is for you, that he hasn't forgotten you, he hasn't forsaken you. He's allowing these things to happen in your life to form and fashion faith in you, to encourage you, to build strength in you. Time under tension to build strength. And you need encouragement today. And you're here because you need the Lord. If that's you right where you're sitting, I just want to ask, as heads are bowed and eyes are closed, right where you're at, if you're feeling that, th that, that type of yearning in your heart for the Lord, and just right where you're at, raise your hand, and I want to pray for you. I see you straight ahead. Praise the Lord. Anyone else here this morning that just needs prayer for God's strength, for courage? In the back, I see you as well. Praise the Lord. Over here to my right, in the back, praise the Lord. God sees you. Over here in the far right as well. In the very back, right here closer in the middle. Praise the Lord. No one else this morning. Perhaps you're not a believer here today. You have heard about Jesus but you don't know him personally. You know about him, but you don't know him. And the issues and things happening in your life have driven you to a place where you cannot continue in your own strength and your own knowledge. You've tried to find the answers and you can't find them anywhere. You come to a part, to a place where you're kind of like the woman with the flow of blood, where you're just reaching through the crowd and you just want to touch the hem of his garment to be healed. Perhaps that's you here this morning. If you're here today and you don't know the Lord, God does not want you to walk this life alone. He doesn't want you to try and figure it out on your own. He does have a purpose and plan for your life, and it's much, much greater than you could ever imagine or ask for yourself. And every one of the people in this park today would testify to the reality of that truth. They would say yes and amen to that. And you're lost. And Jesus is saying, come home. Come to me. And if that's you this morning, right where you're at, again, heads bowed, eyes closed. If you're not saved, call out to Jesus today. Just raise your hand. We'll pray for you as well. Anyone here this morning? Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we come before you. And for those who responded today and lifted their hand. Lord, I love the fact that you always respond, Lord, to a heart that says, Father, help me. I think sometimes of, uh, of the, the great missionary to China, Hudson Taylor, who was going through a difficult time. And he wrote in this journal, I don't know how to trust I said, I don't know how to, to, to pray. I don't know how to, how to read. All I can do is trust. And Lord, today, that's the cry of many people here today. Just raise your hand. Lord, I just need faith to trust. I need faith to hold on. I need faith to believe that, Lord, you have a plan greater and bigger than I can see. There's a purpose for this, and it is for my good, and it's for your glory. And Lord, I pray that you would encourage our brothers and sisters who responded to you today as, Lord, I need you.
Oh, how I need you. Father, right now, in the name of Jesus, we pray that you would manifest your physical presence in their lives, that you would give them strength today, that you would give them peace today. The storm that's going on in their mind and their heart, your word tells us to be anxious for nothing, but in everything with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, to let your request be made known to God and the peace of God that surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And Lord, we pray corporately as a body of believers, Father, would you give them peace? Peace of mind and peace of heart. And Lord, if their grip is beginning to loosen, we ask, Lord God, that you would place your hand over their hands as they are holding on to that rope. And Lord, would you strengthen their grip today? Would you give them everything that they need to make it through this day so that at the end of the day they can lay their heads upon their pillow and they can praise you and thank you for the strength that you've given them, for the work that you're trying to accomplish in and through their lives. And Lord, we would ask and pray that not only would it be for their good, but it would be to the salvation of many lives. You would use it for your glory. And so bless them and encourage them, God. We pray grace upon grace upon grace in their lives today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.